Matthew chapter 2. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Man, I missed you guys. Matthew chapter 2. We'll be speaking about the whole chapter. uh, And so I think it's worth reading the whole chapter. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them exactly the time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search For the child, as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. When they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. There, Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old or under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and we thank you for your son. We thank you that we are able to celebrate his birth. I pray that today you would remind us of what a true joy it is to be able to acknowledge Emmanuel, God with us. 
whether we have a comfortable home or whether we are fleeing. God, I pray uh, that your word would stir in our hearts and I pray that you would speak to your people despite the inabilities of the preacher. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, to, through whom we enter the throne of, bold, uh, throne of grace boldly. Amen. You may be seated. But if you would keep your Bibles open, uh, we will do some flipping back and forth, and I'd love if you would follow along with me. Uh, now, many of you know me. For those who don't, my name is John. Uh, I was born and raised as a missionary kid in Columbia, South America. Uh, and at a young age, I swore I'd be a missionary anywhere else but Columbia. I'm a missionary in Columbia. And yet, regardless of place, uh, I think this passage reminds us of the daily task of every Christian, whether you are a missionary or not. I think the task of a missionary is simply the task of the Christian, uh, and that is to seek to understand God's word, and how does God's word help me to understand who God is and how I should live. That's sort of catechism number three. And so my question that I want us to think through with this passage is, how does God's word answer these questions for Christians in Colombia, in a place that seems really far away to many of you, uh, and yet it is a place that's fraught with difficulty? Uh, Colombia has six million people displaced by violence. So what that means is six million, per, six million people of the population of Colombia at some point in their life had some thing happened, someone showed up with weapons to their house and told them that they had to leave. There's been a civil war going on for years. There's drug cartels. Six million people had to run away with whatever they could carry on their backs. Start a new life. Lost family lands, lost family homes, and start from nothing. And they had to move to cities where there were lots of other displaced people. And yet, the question that I often hear them, is how does the Bible address my situation? Does God really understand what I'm going through? Does he really know? And I find, I think many of us ask that same question often. Does God, I mean, when I pray, does he really know how I feel? And I think this passage in particular shows a Christ who knows our pain, who knows our suffering, and yet brought redemption, even in these difficult experiences. In this passage, there's three kinds of trips. There's a voluntary trip that the Magi go on. There's a trip that's caused by violence, out of fear, because there's a man named Herod out to kill babies. And then there's a third trip caused by fear, where Jesus is not able to return to Judea. And this third trip I'd never noticed before until I sat down and read this passage with some Colombians. One of the things I'd encourage us to think through, I want you to think about a place far away, but I also want you to think in this place where we are. God's word uh, speaks of, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it speaks about how the eye cannot say to the ear, I do not need you. I need to learn from these students just as much as they need to learn from me. So I want to share with you something that they shared with me. In this passage, we have three kinds of trips. If you have your Bible still open, uh, uh, verses 1 through 12 show the first trip of the Magi. The Magi follow the star. There's a bad guy, King Herod, uh, who calls all the nerds from the library. And he says, where is this baby to be born? 
Uh, and they point him to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is the first uh, uh, prophecy that it's referred to. And I'm going to re- read from the book of Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from the ancient of days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will dwell securely, and he shall be their peace. What's fascinating is Micah is talking during a time when Israel was about to go into exile. Now, at this time, the the nation of Judah, Hezekiah comes, brings reforms, and so it's postponed. And yet, this was a time in which Israel was going to be displaced. And this is the prophecy that's stated. And this is also the prophecy that's pointed to when they ask, where is Jesus to be born? And so these magi come and they follow, they follow the star. They go from the east to Jerusalem to Bethlehem to this house to the child. This text moved from place to person. And what do they do in verse 10? They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Now this verse 10 is a beautiful moment. Beautiful moment that many nativity scenes capture. This is also one of the first peaceful moments after continuous crisis. If you look at the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 1 has a genealogy. uh, But for example, uh, the women that are mentioned highlight that this was a very stressful and difficult time for Mary. The only women that are mentioned are the ones that had uh, difficult cultural circumstances. And yet, and Mary is one of them. I mean, she's pregnant. She's not married. You do the math, right? That's what everyone in town was saying. And yet this was by the Holy Spirit. How did the town see her? And then later on in this chapter, in Matthew chapter 1, you, uh, yes, you have Joseph who is afraid. He's, he's should I divorce Mary? What, what should I do? And an angel appears. There's constant crisis up until this moment. Then they have to pick up and start traveling. Uh, and, and then suddenly you have this moment of peace, of, of tranquility, of worship. In Matthew chapter 2, they've talked about worship up until this point, but then you get to these verses. In verse 11, it finally happens. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. They worship this little boy. But look at verse 12. In verse 12, they have to leave, and it talks about how the Magi have to leave uh, uh, and have to depart by another way. Now, this same word that's just to leave or to depart will be used later of Jesus when he leaves twice. So I really think Matthew's trying to tie together something that that would help us notice these three trips. When the Magi have to leave, they have to leave by another route, but they're not fearing for their life or anything like that. But in the very next verse, you see the second trip begin. Matthew 2, verse 13 is the beginning of the second trip. It goes through verse 18, and this one is caused by violence. Again, an angel appears in a dream. Matthew 1.20, he's already appeared. Here it appears again. And the angel says to Joseph that they are to flee. It's an imperative to chaotic action. When I was 18, I was in a motorcycle accident. I didn't call home right away. Because I knew mom was at home alone. And I knew if I called her, her reaction. It would go towards chaotic action. So I waited until I knew my dad was home, and then I called and I said, my mother answered, (laughs) ironically, uh, and I said, hey, can can I talk to dad? And I told him, and I I had him share the news, because I was worried about the kind of reaction it would bring about in my mother, this frantic 
really worried. I did not. I wanted someone to be there with her. I was fine, uh, but I knew she'd be worried. In this moment, you need to flee. You need to run away. You need to depart. For there are people trying, they are seeking to kill this child. And what is verse 13 and 14? Rise and take. And there's an immediacy. It's a middle of the night trip. They flee. They go uh, even when it's dark. And where do they escape? They escape to Egypt. This trip is very different from the Magi fleeing. And Matthew points us to Hosea chapter 1. We read it uh, in the call to worship. And it recalls the escape to Egypt. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called the more they went away. This echoes a difficult time in Israel's history. They were slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt. This is the one place you would not feel safe. And yet that is where Jesus is called to go. That is safer than home. To go back to a place where in your nation's history, these are the people that oppressed you, and you are called to go there. That will be safer than where you are now. And I want you to think through that in your mind. What what it takes for someone to flee to a place like that. But also, Matthew points us to Jeremiah 31, 15. And if you want to turn there, I'm going to start reading from Jeremiah 31, verse 10. This is what it says. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. And then in verse 13, Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, a lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children, for she refuses to be comforted for her children, because... They are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So in the book of Jeremiah, these are people who are weeping, for they must flee. They have lost their homes. They need to leave their homes. And he's telling them, you are weeping, but don't weep. This will not last forever. But then in the book of Matthew, this is shown to be not a weeping because they had to leave homes, but a weeping because these children have been killed. And Christ is the one who has to flee and will return. This is a text of people who were taken from their homeland. And the Holy Spirit points to this passage. I think it's fascinating that early, earlier in this book of Jeremiah, it talks about how God will gather his people again. Without Jesus Christ, God cannot gather the nations together. And yet Christ chose to experience even the most difficult of human situation. In this case, fleeing, running away. He experienced it for us. And I, I'm going to speculate for a moment and I, I, so if there's anything that's going to be wrong, it might be this. But I've often wondered about how Jesus carried this event. People today talk about survivor's guilt. I just wonder. I had an event when I was young. Uh, and I've... You don't talk about it. <laughs> and yet, uh, 
there's things that happened that were not my fault, and yet I carried for many years until that it was my fault. In this case, Jesus did nothing wrong. He fled. There was an adult, Herod, who did something terrible. Did he carry this with him? I don't know. It's tragic, it's sad to have been the only boy from that town who lived. So far, you have two trips. The one of the Magi, this one of Jesus Christ. Matthew 19 starts, Matthew 2.19, I'm sorry, starts a third trip. And this is a trip to Nazareth. And this is the one that I hadn't noticed. If you look at the markers again of the text, an angel appears in a dream. I wonder if Joseph said, no more angels. Every time the angel appears, something terrible happens, right? Uh, But the angel tells him, rise and take the child. Again, there's a sense of immediacy. And here's ironic in verse 20. For those who seek his life are dead. Those who were trying to kill him have died. The baby survived. The king died. And so he comes. But look in verse 22. There's fear. He feels like he's not able to return for fear. And the angel actually says that. And so they have to escape. Again, the word to leave appears here. It appeared when they left uh, Uh, Bethlehem, it appears here again. They have to leave or escape to Nazareth. They are not able to go back to Judea. So not only does he have to leave, he feels like he cannot return. And so he goes to Nazareth. And it's fascinating. In the book of John, Nathaniel, when he finds out uh, where Jesus is from, that he's from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, Nathaniel is from Bethsaida, which is also right in the region. So the nearby town is sort of like Clover talking about York. Can anything good from, right? Uh, That's what's happening here. Nazareth was a no place. It was a no name. It had absolutely, it was of no importance and people looked down upon it. That's the kind of town where Jesus was raised. He came from an insignificant place. These later two trips that Matthew points us to, Jesus, the Christ, had to flee and couldn't return to his own town. Number one, to fulfill prophecy. Do you see how many times Matthew points us to the Old Testament? But two, I think also to show that he's sharing in our experience. Of the classes I teach, uh, one of the topics that we have to teach that we talk about is Christology. We talk about how Christ entered into our suffering. We talked about it today with the children, right? Pastor Mark talked about it. He, he, he was tempted but without sin. Right? He did not sin. Uh, He knows what it's like to be hungry. He was sleepy. But he also knows what it's like to be displaced. And so Christ redeems our suffering. He was tempted but without sin. He knows how we feel and he redeems our experience of temptation by showing, through redemption. Um, How does Christ redeem this experience? These passages can be read Christologically as the Christ who did this for us, and he shows us how we should live in an experience where maybe we have to run away from home. Colombians read this passage that way. They read it, and they ask, how did Jesus live through this experience? What is his concept of hope? But what's fascinating is Christians in Colombia are not the first people to do this. Matthew 2 was read this way by a man named Athanasius. Now, you happen to have an Athanasius scholar in your midst, Jonathan Williams, who's standing here. He embarrassed me earlier. Now it's his turn. Uh, If you are wondering about Athanasius, ask that man. He knows so much. Um, But one of the things that Athanasius talks about 
uh, is, is he reads this passage as someone who also had to run away. Athanasius was a pastor of a very important church, but he was forced to leave from this church uh, by the government. They exiled him. They sent him in, into exile for being faithful to the Nicene Creed, the one that we read just earlier. For being faithful to that creed, he was sent away from his church five separate times for more than 16 years. And while he was away, he wrote to the church. He preached through letters. But he also reflected on what it means to have to run away as a Christian. And during his third exile, he wrote an apology. He explained why he had to run away. Now, I feel like in today's day and age, you could just say, well, they were trying to kill me and that would be enough. Uh, but in this time, it wasn't, because he was being, by the people who were trying to kill him, he was being accused of being a coward, of having a lack of faith, not, not trusting God enough, which is something my parents left Columbia when I was 16, and they were told that phrase exactly. And so he writes a defense. And so first, he tells the story of dozens of pastors who were removed from their churches or even killed for being faithful to declaring that Jesus is actually totally, entirely God. But then he also does some exegesis. And one of the things he does is normative exegesis. He shows how the Bible commands that people should flee if someone is attempting in their life. So Exodus 21, for example, the Bible has cities of refuge. If someone is trying to kill you, you should flee. Matthew 5 and Matthew 24, Jesus tells his disciples, in times of persecution, you should flee. He tells them to do it. So Athanasius says, see, in these cases, it's okay to run away. But also, he points to exemplary exegesis. He points to godly men uh, and women throughout Scripture who had to run away. And he talks about, for example, Elijah who ran away from Jezebel and Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. And this is his conclusion. This is what he said. The word himself, who became a human for our sakes, considered it right or considered himself worthy to hide when he was persecuted or chased, just as we have to do, and also when he was persecuted, to flee and avoid the plans of his enemies. For it was appropriate and right for him, as he did with hunger and thirst and suffering, to also hide and flee and to show that he had truly taken our flesh and made himself a person. And then he does an exegesis of Matthew chapter 2. Jesus took on a multitude of human experiences. Now I want you to just... Contemplate, reflect for just one moment. The word who spoke the world into existence had to learn how to speak as a baby. The word who sustains all things by the word of his power, Colossians 1, was sustained by the hands of Mary. He was tempted but without sin. And this fleeing for him, this is what it meant to be human. You live in a rare time in history and in a place in history where you are safe. When we pray thanking God for this nation, you, do, you are recognizing something amazing. The United States is amazing that you are able to feel safe and you don't have to flee. But in the history of humanity, people often have had to flee for their lives. And Matthew 2 gave Athanasius solace in this time. And he even says, Jesus himself told the angel to warn Joseph, I think that's hilarious, for Christ who took our suffering did not cease to be God, he holds the universe together though he condescended to be born 
and to flee. This is the mystery of the hypostatic union. That's the fancy term for it. But when we reflect on God did not cease to be God and yet took our experiences for him. So how does God's word help Colombians to understand who God is and how they should live in this situation? When we pray, he really understands. Christ didn't have to flee for his life. He chose to because he loves us. He loved Colombians. He loved Athanasius so much. He's willing to take that experience. Think about it for a moment. For a person who has to flee for their life, what does he provide? He provides a new home. What does John chapter 14 say? I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may also be. These people will never, oftentimes, never be able to call a place home because they had to run away. And yet Christ provides a home for them. And so for Colombians, when they read this passage, it has a very real uh, application to them. But I would also encourage you to think about it for us today. How is God with us? How do we think through this? Matthew chapter 1, there's a mom who's scandalized by culture. God saw the injustice, and this story is central to history. God is with scared singles moms. Matthew 1 also has a dad who's in fear and who is in doubt and isn't sure what he will do. If you are a dad who's afraid, God with us. If you are a person who's been displaced, God with us. See, whether it's a big experience or a small one, whether it's six million people who are displaced or the experience of a little boy struggling to learn how to read, really truly believe God's word points us to who he is. It's God with us and how we should live. Christ knows and understands our suffering and he brings redemption to them. And so I want to end with something from the Westminster Confession of Faith from chapter 8. This is what it says, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time had come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, but without sin. And then in section 8, to all those for whom Christ has purchased redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and communicates the same, making intercession for them and revealing to them in and by the word the mystery of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey and governing them, their hearts, by his word and spirit. I would encourage you to take time this Christmas, yes, to worship, yes, to celebrate, but also to meditate. Think on who Christ is. When you come to the cantata tonight and you're singing these lines from these hymns, there is some incredible theology in the lines we sing every Christmas. Think on what it means. The God of the universe became a person that we might have a right relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that he has called us From darkness, through him we are called from darkness into light. And thank you that he has walked a much harder road than we ever had to. And when we pray, you know how we feel. And you bring redemption to these difficult 
experiences. God, I pray that for the church in Columbia, that they would know what God with us means for them, even in their having to flee from their homes. But I pray that this would also be real for us today, that as we uh, sing songs, as we celebrate Christmas with family and friends, that we would be able to reflect on who you are and what you have done and how you've called us to live. And I pray that we would live with grateful hearts, acknowledging how much you've loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.